This is Chris. Welcome to episode 241 of X Lapsed, where uh, we're uh, still having some uh, mouth issues here. Um, the numbness is gone. If you listen to uh, the previous episode, you'll know I had a temporary crown put in and uh, was very, very numb for a very long time. And, uh, well, uh, the numbness has gone away, but the uh, now the pain is starting to set in. And I'm holding my mouth weird because I'm still afraid I'm going to bite a great big hole in my cheek. And uh, I'm just kind of sore. I, you know, I had my mouth pried open with uh, torture fetish devices for a little over two hours just yesterday. So it's uh, it's not the most pleasant thing in the world. But we will we will do our best here. And thankfully, we have a very very pleasant book to discuss today. Maybe not in terms of content because it is some dark stuff. But it's a wonderful wonderful book. So uh, let's. Hop right into it here. Let's waste no time. This is Hellions number 14. Had an October 2021 cover date, so we are into the August books now. Uh, the DCBS order I got in the middle of uh, August had a couple of August books in it since it took forever to get to me. Anyway, the story is called Don't Look Back Part 2, The Judgment of Angels. Written by Zeb Wells with art by Roge Antonio. Colors, Rain Barreto. Letters, VCs, Ariana Mar. Design, Tom Muller. Head of X, for now, Hickman. Edits, Amaro, Basso, White, Sobolski. Cover price, $3.99. Went on sale August the 4th of 2021. Now, we open with a mostly blank quote page. Uh, this time, it doesn't come to us from Nightcrawler. Instead, it's from Tarn the Uncaring. And uh, from what little he says here, we can tell that he's kind of a sick individual, as if we didn't already know. He's a... Uh, He's actually one of the first, like, actually sort of kind of scary characters we've had introduced to us here. Now, the comic content kicks off at the Great Ring of Araco on Mars. Now, the Great Ring, of course, is the Araco analog to the Krakoan Quiet Council. And I figure, hey, you know what, while we're here, let's do a pre-roll call roll call in order to introduce some of these characters. We don't see them very often. They may be new to some of us. So uh, we start with... Subiner of the Depths. Now, this is the purple Geico Gecko-looking guy. He's standing behind Storm, who we see next. Storm. Now, we know her quite well, of course. Uh, Lactuka the Knower, who looks kind of like Cosmic Soup under a cloak. We got Izka the Unbeaten, and of course we know her. We got Idol, the Future Seer. Now, this is the horn-headed prophet who the creepy summoner spoke of when he told the story of Araco. I feel like this is... Maybe a different idol. I think idol may be a name as well as a title. Because uh, we know that the Creepy Summoner had an idol as a crib mate when he was a baby. So uh, 
Don't know if this is the same one, or maybe just one in a line of idols. I, I really don't know if it matters all that much for the story we're getting today. Uh, we've got Tarn the Uncaring, of course, uh, the leader of the Locust Vile, and someone we will be spending uh, quite a bit of time with today. We got Xylo, the first defender, who is the giant caterpillar-looking thing. And we got a new blue-skinned character who uh, not even the Marvel Wiki bothered to name, so uh, I couldn't tell you who or what that is. Now, Tarn's got the floor here, and he uh, makes some threats toward Mr. Sinister, and Storm kind of takes it personally. She says, if you, if you threaten that island, meaning Krakoa, you also threaten me. And Storm suggests that it's not in Tarn's best interest to do either. But the uncaring is super ticked about Sinister stealing the DNA back during X of Tens. And the rest of the Great Ring sides with Storm. And so Tarn gives his word that he won't mess with Krakoa, which leads Idol the Future Seer to give him like a weird side glance, which in a very funny bit here, it's, I mean, we talk about com comic timing in uh, Hellions here, and uh, Steven Segovia being just a, a fantastic comedic artist in like reactions and whatnot. Here we have Roger Antonio proving that uh, they're just as good. So Idol looks at uh, looks at Tarn like a uh, really now and Tarn's like wait what what do you mean <laughs> why wouldn't you trust me? He's very much the Araco analog to Sassy Sinister and it's it's really so well done. I, I actually chuckled at this uh, at just one panel with these wonderful wonderful uh, reactions. Anyway we follow Tarn back to the Tower of Vile which I'm assuming is somewhere on Mars, though I don't recall seeing it on any of the maps. Though then again, I also don't recall not seeing it either. Anyway, a small portal opens, and from it pops one of Mother Rapture's bladefish. Now this is a sign to him that the Locust Vile have found the, quote, Den of Thieves, which I mean, I take to mean Mr. Sinister. And so Tarn prepares to head Krakow away. He's, a uh, He's like, well, I guess you made a liar out of me. Not that his word really meant all that much to begin with. Double page spread of roll call and cred, and boy, do we have a cast for us today. Havoc, Orphan Maker, Nanny, Mr. Sinister, Clone Sinister, Wild Child, Psylocke, Empath, Grey Crow, Tarn the Uncaring, Sick Bird, Amino Fetus, Mud Gear, Mother Rapture, and Hex Butcher. Now back to comics and back to the bar Sinister. And we basically pick up where we left off last issue, where the Hellions have been confronted by the Locust Vile for their rematch. Now, if you recall, the scarred Sinister clone now works for Tarn and has led the Vile here. Now, the Locust Vile appear to be quite annoyed by the fact that Wildchild, Nanny, and the Orphan Maker have been brought back to life. You see, they claim that they had, quote, fed them the gift of death. Now, Havoc asks Quanan if she understands any of what they're talking about, and uh, she does not. She is not sure what they're on about. Now, Scarred Sinister is giddy at the prospect that the Hellions are about to find out what really happened during their trip to Amenth, and uh, I guess more specifically what happened at the end of that trip. Sinister Prime is, uh, as you might imagine, quite displeased at this turn of events, and the Scarred One suggests perhaps a deal could be struck. Off to the side, our three Amenthi Resurrectees, Nanny, Orphan Maker, and Wildchild, begin acting kind of strange. They start to feel intense anger and rage, and are just seething with, like, just bloodthirst. And so they lunge toward the Locust Vile and just start beating the bejesus out of them. From here, it's an info page, and it's a scientific take on the Amenthi Resurrectees. 
Now, this note suggests that these three were reborn in such a way where they'd evolved somewhat in order to not die again the same way. So, which is, you know, this is all to say, if the locust vial killed them in a month, now they'd all be better able to defend themselves against the locust vial. Do you follow? At least that's my takeaway from this. I think that's kind of the angle they're going with. Anyway, back to comics, and we get a few pages of Wild Child Nanny and Orphan Maker really getting the better of some of the Locust Vile, and Empath, is he's kind of getting off on it. He's like, this is kind of hot, which is funny and gross. Uh, I, I laughed either way. Anyway, now this is when Mother Rapture wound up sending that bladefish through the portal, by the way, so this is where that happens. And so moments later, Tarn the Uncaring arrives. And the first thing he does is reverts Wild Child back to his pre-death and resurrection self. So he's no longer the Alpha, he's back to being the Beta, who takes to hiding behind Quanan. So uh, he undid the gift that the evolutionary resurrection uh, bestowed upon him. From here, Tarn spills all the Amenthi beans to the Hellions. And so using some mental hoodoo, now the Hellions all know exactly what happened. They know that Sinister killed them after they returned from Amenth. And Quanan realizes that uh, she was just used as a pawn in order to get those DNA samples safely back to Krakoa, and then done away with so she wouldn't be any the wiser. Now Sinister's there trying to play damage control, trying to spin this thing. He's like, hey, you know, Tarn's a liar. He's lying. How, how come you, why are you believing this, this you know, crazy evil thing here? Eh, the Hellions ain't buying it here. They've got plenty of reason to distrust Sinister, so uh, I figure this just falls in line with uh, the expectation from a Mr. Sinister. Anyway, Sinister Prime here, he pushes a button which releases dozens of Sinister clones onto the battlefield. <laughs> As they come to life, their first words are, Hooray! Which is <laughs> pretty great. Uh, Sinister Prime wishes them all a happy birthday, like, hooray, happy birthday, it's your birthday, as they all descend on Tarn. Now, during the brouhaha, Sinister Prime asks the scarred Sinister clone to accompany him to a secret location. Well, Scar ain't so sure, until Sinister says one special word. And gang, this is a word we've been waiting for Mr. Sinister to say for quite a long time. And that word is Chimera. And so, the two Sinisters bebop into a Sinister-centric portal, which he calls a no-gate. It's only, you know, it only works for Sinisters. Uh, which likely sends them over to Arcade's Neo-Murder World, which we saw him uh, take over during the Funny Games three-parter. And uh, we wrap up with the Hellions and the Sinister Squad being left to battle the Locust Vile and Tarn. And, uh... That's where we leave it. Next episode, we're talking X-Men Volume 6, Number 2. But for now, let's talk about uh, this wonderful, wonderfully fun issue of Hellions. And um, I want to start by suggesting that this might be one of those good news, bad news situations. Because uh, as much as I loved this issue, and, and don't get me wrong, I did. I thought this was so much fun. It also um, kind of crosses a Rubicon. You know, where I think the uh, the original mandate, mission statement of this title has just been changed in kind of a irreversible sort of way. You know, this is not going to be the book anymore where 
this team of oddities and goofballs is uh, working for Mr. Sinister anymore. They know that Mr. Sinister did what he did following uh, their Amenthi trip, and I don't think it'll ever be able to go back to being what it was. And not that it needs to be. I mean, this is a book that's been evolving since the first issue, and this is just another evolution of it. But to me, it feels like uh, we might be, you know, getting ready to wind it up. I hope that isn't the case, of course, but I feel like with Inferno coming up, and, I mean, we're getting the mention of Chimera, which I think was probably the A to B for Hellions. You know, we had to get from today to Chimera, and here we are doing just that. I think it's kind of like a mission accomplished for this series. Uh, we have a few mysteries left, but... Um, I mean, as we've seen from Marvel of late, they're not being shy about wrapping things up and kind of cutting things off at the knees, you know? Um, we saw X-Factor heavily truncated. We're seeing uh, Children of the Atom, which I don't know if that was always meant to be a six-issue series, but if it was meant to be a six-issue series, then the way they set it up was really, really lousy and did the book no favors. It, you know, it was basically, if you buy this trade collection, all you're getting is the five narrated issues from each of the team members, and a wrap-up. You know, it feels like it's uh, very... Uh, just not paced very well. Also, the word is out that uh, Way of X is uh, going the way of, well, X-Factor, I guess, in that it's uh, going to wrap up. And it has nothing to do with sales, apparently, because, I mean, it is selling quite a bit better than Excalibur, which, like the mighty cockroach, is as ugly <laughs> as it is resilient. Though all my, you know, fears and trepidations aside about the longevity of this title, I, I, you know, I really, really enjoyed it. It's, a, it's just another wonderful issue of Hellions, full of dark humor, characterization, progression of a story. It's, a, oh man, I, I just love this book. I love this book. I wish more books were like this book, which uh, is something I never thought I'd say when this book was launched. I really like that uh, we're fleshing out the Tarn the Uncaring character um, in that we're seeing him like among his peers in the Great Ring and seeing just how close an analog he is to our own Mr. Sinister and how they're so similar but at the same time very, very different in their... Uh, I'm not even sure if it's their approaches that are different, but you just get a different feeling from both of them. But at the same time, they're very, very comparable in uh, their attitudes and probably in their mission. Sinister's this crazy, you know, geneticist here trying to put pieces together to create uh, new critters. And, well, Tarn's already done that. You know, Tarn did that with the Locust Vial, just uh, creating these monstrosities to do his bidding. And, uh, I mean, we close out this issue with Sinister retiring back to Arcade's place in order to try to do the same. And, I mean, we don't know a whole heck of a lot about the Chimeras, besides what we saw in, like, X-Squared back in Hoxpox. We saw the that there were Chimeras there. It was basically bits and pieces of different mutant DNA in one body. So you'd have, like, this best-of-all-worlds sort of a character with the strengths and power sets of, uh, you know, disparate mutants in Sinister's uh, library. And, you know, speaking of Sinister's library, I actually read something for the first time uh, yesterday. I was uh, waiting at the dentist's office, as I've mentioned uh, many times. And I pulled out my phone and checked Marvel Unlimited because I remember someone told me that uh, there were a few pages of Marvel Incoming that I had to take a look at. Um, now, Incoming is one of those uh, 
like Marvel was putting out those books like every year where they're like these giant uh, sized sort of jam books where it kind of gives you a little bit of everything. Like every, you know, the writer of Spider-Man will give you three or four pages about what's to come in Spider-Man, kind of with a cliffhanger so you want to invest. Um, the, you know, the space stuff would get their thing. We had like King in Black stuff introduced in there. It's stuff they've been doing ever since... Uh, like the Marvel Point One uh, one shot, and then you'd have like the Marvel Now Point One. You had Marvel Legacy, the big one shot. Uh, Marvel Comics One Thousand, which was another big one shot. And here with Incoming, I was told that uh, there were a few pages that were relevant to this, uh, you know, Hoxpox era of X Men. And so while I waited, I, I kind of flipped through the uh, the Incoming one shot. Um, so much of the Marvel stuff, I I really didn't know which way it was up, but uh, I did get to. The little story that was relevant to uh, to our purview, and it was all about Mister Sinister, and it showed off some of his uh, DNA collection, which I thought was really cool. And we saw characters like uh, Mister M from the District X uh, series that uh, Bishop starred in back in the day, who I'm still waiting to show up at some point because he is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, just like this incredibly, incredibly powerful mutant. I believe he's an Omega, and he's one that. Uh, He's got some pretty crazy powers, so I don't know if we'll if we'll see him in this era, but I, I kind of hope we do. But the story ended with uh, with Sinister going through a list here, and he's like, okay, this guy, check, we got him. Okay, this girl, check, we got her. And it wraps up with him looking at a spot that he had saved for Franklin Richards, saying, nope, don't got him yet. So I thought that was really cool. And, uh, I mean, it means something totally different to us post-Fantastic uh, Four number 26. But, I mean... It's still fun to think about, and it's still neat to get that reminder that Sinister, Sinister's in this for himself here, because he's even talking during that about like how Professor X has him on a certain path and has tasked him with certain things here, but that's not going to stop him from also serving his own purpose. And uh, I like that, and it's it's really coming to fruition here in Hellions, where Sinister is his own guy here, and he while working for the Quiet Council and working under Xavier. He's still very much his own man, and he's still working, you know, for himself as well. And it's so cool that in this Hellion series, we're actually watching the pieces fall into place. You know, he's getting the Amenthi DNA. We're seeing that happen. He's taking over arcades in the old murder world. We're seeing that happen, too. It's a lot of fun to actually see these story bits rather than just hearing that it happened off panel. Because, I mean... We're actually seeing this build organically, and it's actually serving stories here. It's making this entire volume mean something more. Like, this isn't just going to be a footnote. This is going to be something that actually matters. And it's also retroactively making the Fallen Angels miniseries matter, too, because we're playing into the whole Quanan and her digital daughter thing. I mean, it's just... it's really well done. This is such a fun book. I, I, hope, it, I hope it sticks around for a while. And I can't wait to check out the next issue here. If we're starting to learn about the chimeras, I mean, that's... We've all been waiting for that for, well, over two years at this point. So here, here's looking forward to that. I hope you guys are as well. Uh, like I mentioned during the synopsis here, Rose Antonio knocks it out of the park here. And I mean, if you're following this book, you know that the series regular artist, Steven Segovia, just has great comedic timing. Zeb Wells is... I think he might be unmatched in as far as the uh, the X-Men books are concerned in being able to deliver a dark comedy or just comedy in general. And Segovia is a perfect match for him here. But Roge Antonio 
no slouch either. Really, really good stuff insofar as reactions, insofar as character placement and positioning. Re really good directorial stuff here. And, uh, I mean, that one scene at the Great Ring where Tarn's like, what? Why don't you trust me? I mean, it felt like... It felt like Mr. Sinister, and it was just so well done. But I think that's all I got to say about this one, uh, because my, my mouth hurts a lot. <laughs> and, uh, and I think I've pretty much said everything I need to say without getting too repetitive or even more repetitive. So let's tie it off right there. Uh, of course, uh, as I say, every time we cover an issue of Hellions, if you're not reading this book, do yourself a favor and read this book, because it is something else. I mean, most of it is available on Marvel Unlimited, so if you have a sub, give it a shot. I don't think you'll be sorry. But with all that said, let's hop into the mailbag here. We got a few letters. I'm going to try to get through them as long as my uh, mouth holds up. <laughs> um, if I can't get through them, we'll just uh, hold them off till uh, next episode. Uh, thankfully, if you're listening in real time, this is a Friday episode. So you'll know that uh, I've got a couple of days to recover. And hopefully by uh, Monday's episode, I'll be back to as close to 100% as I ever am. So uh, let's get into the mail. And we're going to start off with Jesse, who actually has a message I've been waiting for for a long time here. It's someone saying nice things about X-Corp. So uh, he's going to be talking about X-Corp number three. Jesse says, first, I want to thank and congratulate you on a year straight of podcasting. You've gone above and beyond and have entertained me for countless hours. Thank you for recognizing myself and so many others through your words and for sharing your thoughts and fandom with us. Well, thank you so much for being there, Jesse. It's uh, been an absolute privilege to do this program and to meet such wonderful folks. I mean, that's like I said during the anniversary episode, that's why I, uh, why I kept doing it. You know, it's uh, without uh, folks engaging and, and being part of this journey with me, there's, there's no way it would still be a, a thing that I do. Jesse continues, I kept looking at the cover for X-Corp number three and thinking, I wonder what's underneath this book. And then I would read the next book down in my pile. But much like having to unload the dishwasher, the time came where even this chore needed to be done. So I sat back and let all my expectations settle in as I began to read about Jamie. I may be one of the few fans who do not mind that Jamie's powers manifested at birth. There's always a few exceptions to the rules of nature. I didn't mind page one. Then, by page three, I was thinking that this would not last. But, you know what happened? I actually liked X-Corp number three. Now, it wasn't Hellions or Way of X, but it was not bad. I thought M was not an outrageous Emma Frost, and she was acting like she should. I thought that the story with Jamie and Layla Miller, full name always because there are so many Laylas in the X-Books, was welcomed. And even though the outcome with that storyline was obvious, I liked watching it play out. I'm disappointed that Layla didn't say that Davy was going to walk that day because she, quote, knows things, if you remember her, uh, her gimmick from House of M and back in the day. Jesse continues with, that was a missed opportunity. I'm glad to see Layla back, even though I wonder if she's not welcome on Krakoa with her power set. Warren was bland like a blonde, white, straight male CEO always seems to be. That I didn't enjoy so much. But I've always found Angel boring. Now, I think a lot of my problem with Monet and her portrayal comes from probably uh, my own projection that Dattini Howard is using her as something of a uh, mouthpiece so she can make like the firm and brave stance against Nazis, which I mean is, is such a brave stance in, a, in current year, right? But also being hypocritical in that uh, maybe she doesn't know that Celine, uh, the one that Monet was kind of going gaga over, 
Well, well she worked for Nazis. She worked for Baron Strucker. And uh, she and Monet is having problems with the Strucker kids who have never been taken seriously. But someone who worked with Baron Strucker is, uh, is her new idol. And I know how we've joked that uh, Tini Howard doesn't read any books that she doesn't write. But, I mean, it's, it's kind of like right there on its face, isn't it? Jesse continues, You mention a bunch of great points with your recap, especially with X-Corp rolling out 15-year-old technology as their big thing. I interpreted that at the end, it didn't roll out like it should have because Jamie was so distraught with losing his dupe with the memories that he wanted that he didn't hit the red button or whatever needed to be done. Jamie's been wishy-washy with being a father, and maybe, just maybe, he might feel like a bad father, including with absorbing his first son back in X-Factor Volume 2. That's unlikely because the writer doesn't even know what M's personality should be, so chances are Howard won't know a thing about this either. Well, I'm glad you said that and not me. <laughs> and I'm sure that's, uh, that's right. I'm sure that Jamie was just so uh, distraught and, and just dealing with what he was dealing with that he, you know, foobarred the, uh, the launch here. But I still don't understand what the big deal with, uh, you know, fast internet would be. Like, why is that something that a leading tech company on the planet would be, like, focusing all their attention on when, I mean, we're in the fantastical Marvel universe. You know, you got to figure that uh, internet's probably pretty quick there. So, or maybe they're behind the times there. Maybe that's the whole thing. Maybe uh, they're, on, they're still on dial-up. And this is the first time they're integrating broadband so that they can make it more like the world outside our window. I, I, I don't know. Uh, Jesse continues. I can kind of understand the whole telepathy stuff with Monet and St. John, the only other female CEO in the world, by guessing M was so upset because she didn't have a psychic blocker, but a psychic reflector. So maybe Monet's powers got a wicked feedback versus just being blocked. M should have never even tried using her powers, but I suppose instead of just blocking a telepath, it was meant to hurt a telepath. And this is more of my problem with the way Monet's been portrayed here. Uh, this strikes me as... Her reaction is like if someone breaks into your house, slips on something, and twists their ankle, and then they sue you. I mean, we've all heard of the frivolous lawsuit like that. I feel like, you know, Monet invading someone else's mind, you know, breaking in to someone else's brain... Then getting a bit of uh, residual feedback or whatever it was that this reflector caused. And then having the nerve to get angry about it. It's like, it's like I thought these were superheroes or just heroes in general. I, I thought we're supposed to like these people. And I mean, you know, some books aren't for me. You know, is this a book where we're all supposed to be like pumping our fist like with Yas Queens for, uh, for Monet for the way she's acting? Or are we supposed to look at her like, wow, what a jerk. And I think the worst part of that question that I just asked is, I'm asking it with zero irony. I really don't know. Anyway, Jesse wraps up with, I'm glad that sometimes we're on different sides of things, and I'm also glad that I at least think I didn't waste four bucks on this book. Well, thank you so much, Jesse. And yes, it's always cool to get someone else's uh, perspective if we're on different sides of an issue. I, I love that. I, you know, this is the kind of stuff that I want. If ever we fall on different sides of, a, of an issue, or if I like something that you hate, or vice versa, I'm not asking you to call me out on it, but I mean, let's discuss it. Let's point out things that we did like. Let's help each other to, uh, to understand our points of view and positions. Not expecting to change anybody's minds, of course, but just to, I don't know, paint a uh, bigger picture. And uh, maybe get a, uh, if nothing else, a begrudging appreciation for some of the things, even if we didn't necessarily care for them. So uh, thank you so much for writing in, Jesse. I, 
always love hearing from you, no matter what the uh, what the subject is. So thanks again. Uh, next up, we got Meal talking about Sword Number Seven. Emil says, Now that you finally reviewed Sword 7, I can finally give all my opinions on the issue. When Doctor Doom is one of your most likable characters, yikes. <laughs> but Ewing writes him so well. Those lines about what is probably the White Hot Room are great. I'm not completely sure of how competent a leader Storm is going to be, as she doesn't seem to be very good at holding in her temper. And that's true. I mean, she's very hot-headed here. She literally hits the dining room table with a bolt of lightning. Which, I don't know, I always see Storm as being a bit uh, more even keel than that But uh, who knows, maybe uh, when you're in charge of an entire planet and galaxy I don't know, maybe you act differently, maybe you grow into the role Uh, Emil continues Another thing that I hate is Abigail Brand To think that what Abigail Brand is doing, while morally flawed But if you close your eyes to her war atrocities, simply because it's for the greater good And that's true. I mean, I think there's a lot of conflict in that character. And I think there's a lot of room to um, appreciate Abigail Brand and her position here. We we saw earlier in the Run of Sword where she doesn't exactly come down on the same side as Magneto in a conversation. They have similar goals at the end of the day, but their approaches and their scope is different, right? Um, Brand talks about, I mean, micro-macro. Abigail Brand talks about the galaxy. The universe, where Magneto's talking about an island on a planet, right? Abigail Brand's uh, loyalty is to both. You know, she's going to serve Krakoa as best she can, but she's also got an eye toward protecting her interests in the galaxy. So, I mean, she's a complicated character, and by all rights, should be someone that we ought to maybe not so much root for um, 100%, but someone we could kind of kind of struggle with, you know, because, like you said, morally flawed for sure, and she's doing some bad things, but to her, it's very, it's rationalized, it's justified in that the ends will, at the end of the day, justify her means. Problem with Abigail Brand is she's written to be awful. (laughs) I mean, the sass and the snark, I talk about it every time she comes up, She's just not a likable character. She's a character where you want to see get her comeuppance here. She's not just like a ambiguously, you know, shades of gray character. She's just a jerk. <laughs> She's just not fun to read about. Meal continues. However, after pondering my thoughts on Soul and the mutants taking over the solar system, I just don't like it. I don't believe that anyone should have that much power in the universe. It just feels too much like imperialism for me. And yeah, your, your point is well taken, but I'm thinking that is the point. I think we're going to see the mutants uh, flying a little too close to the sun here. I think they're going to they're gonna push just a little too far, and I think it's going to be one of those, um, maybe not so much a come-to-Jesus moment, but like kind of looking in the mirror and noticing that, uh, that you're a changed, your, your, your mission statement has changed here, because, you know, we talk about moral ambiguity, right? Whether it's Beast, whether it's Abigail Brand, whether it's Magneto, whether it's Professor Xavier. Sometimes moral ambiguities stack upon one another, right? It's like a game of telephone where you make an allowance here and there, but then the allowance becomes the rule, and then you make allowances off of that. And so it stacks, and it stacks, and it stacks, and by the end, it's like it's like if you look into the horizon on one straight line, if you were to move that line one degree, well, as you 
go further away from yourself, they split. You know, and when you're at the horizon, you're suddenly miles from where you initially intended to be. That's how I see this going. I see this all going with, with uh, rationalization and justification that they're doing the right thing, but as the inconsistencies stack upon themselves, we're just going to get further and further away from that point, and we're not even going to realize it. It's going to be the old, uh, you know, how do you boil a frog dilemma, right? If you take a frog and put him in a, in a pot of boiling water, he's going to hop out. But if you put a frog in a pot of room temperature water and slowly heat it to boiling, he ain't going to get out. He's going to sit there not realizing that things have changed. I think that's kind of the way we're going with the mutants here, and I think they're going to realize eventually that, wow, we've become you know, everything we've hated and fought against. Now, I mean, I think it's almost got to go that way, because otherwise, if it's not, these are just some awful characters, right? Uh, Meal closes out with, I like the series, except for the characters, which I think that's a really apt way of putting it, for sure. Um, the series is really good, and you guys know, I didn't want to like this one. <laughs> I wanted to hate this one. I wanted this to be something that I could uh, kind of poke holes in and uh, just dislike. And uh, Al Ewing's a good writer. And Valerio Shidi, the regular artist, is a fantastic artist. So this is uh, this is a good series. But you're right. The characters, the characters that we that we get to see, aren't always the greatest. You know, um, this book is very much focused on Abigail Brand. But this book also has a large cast full of fun characters who just aren't getting the panel time. It reminds me of Marauders. You know, we have Marauders, which has basically been Emma Frost and Sebastian Shaw in a slap fight. Like, where's Call Me Kate? Where's Bishop? Where's Iceman? Where's Pyro? Where's our cast? Where's Kalisto? Um, it's just hyper-focused on certain characters. And here with Sword, it's like, well, where's Frenzy? Where's Peeper? Where's... I mean, Manifold shows up, but doesn't do a whole heck of a lot. Like, where are these fun characters? Where's Wizkid? You know, they just show up maybe for a panel, maybe not even for a panel, and don't do much. It's unfortunate, but hopefully... If Sword can ever get out of crossover limbo, maybe we'll start seeing maybe we'll start seeing some fleshing out of these uh, these background characters. Meal closes out with so until Zeb Wells gets another X book, be my next lapsed, and I will co-sign that. <laughs> Let's get Zeb Wells on another book as quick as possible. But thank you so much for writing in, Meal, and uh, I. Th- I think this is where I'm going to tap out for today. Um, the mouth is really, really sore. And uh, we got a few more letters and, and a voicemail as well, but we will uh, we will push them out uh, for a little bit just so I can uh, become more accustomed to my, my new mouth <laughs> and uh, hopefully uh, be able to speak without uh, biting huge chunks out of my, uh, my cheek. I actually had a lot of plans for uh, recording projects today. Uh, I was going to start working on some exclusive stuff if I were to ever get the, uh, the Patreon off the ground. And I do have a handful of episodes already recorded that, I've, that have been recorded for several months now, um, which would take a look at the Age of X-Men uh, series. But I don't know if those are what I want to really launch with. I have other ideas, and I think they're going to be some, some fun issues and stories and, and series to discuss. Uh, it's just that I can't really do it with my mouth in this state. So it's just going to have to uh, sit in my Google Docs folder as, uh, as scripts and bullet points uh, for now. And then we'll 
Maybe we'll revisit them when I'm uh, more apt to speak without uh, hurting myself. So that's where we will leave it for today. Um, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can do so several different ways. I'll try to get through the uh, the uh, plugs today. Uh, Ace Comics on Twitter. WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. 623-396-JERK for the uh, voicemail. You can find blog posts and show notes at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. You can join us on Facebook at 90sxmen. And, of course, there's chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available everywhere. The internet aggregates noise and sound. So that's going to do it for today. I would like to thank you all so much for sharing some of your day with me and uh, tolerating my uh, lockjaw. <laughs> so thank you so, so much. It means more than I can say it means to me. But uh, until next time, as always... I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.